You know, I'm uh, mostly spending time on Instagram because I have to um, gather people together from Instagram and mobilize them through um, Instagram, which is really easy to, uh, you know, the young generation are there. But Twitter is just for journalists, politicians, and you know that. Yes. And yeah. uh, so mostly I spend my time on Instagram and uh, Facebook and Telegram, WhatsApp, being in touch with people inside Iran. But my husband checking my Twitter and uh, he said that you have to answer this because this is really important. They always follow you. They always support you. And I just, you know, I said, oh, yeah, I know this guy. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the the story behind it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm always hanging around. I'm always kind of, you know, because I'm kind of new to this, but I've been really trying to get involved in a lot of the secular rights movements and, you know, trying to gather all the people into have these conversations through podcasts and things like that so as to in- introduce new people to an audience because a lot of people kind of interview the same five people everywhere i've noticed yeah that which i hate that yeah that's true yeah yeah that's true so it's a little it's a little risky to like present new people because maybe they don't draw in so much crowd but i think if i you know it's i try to that's why i try to go through books and things like that and find new activists and everything well, well, good luck. It's a good idea. And I, I'm really, you know, um, admiring individual who, uh, like, you know, you're not working for any media. You're just working for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Totally independent. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. That is actually, I always tell on my own show, uh, encouraging people to be their own media, to be their own storyteller, to be, you know, their own television, actually. So that is why, actually, um, I don't think. You follow my work on my uh, Persian broadcasting, my my uh, my program on Voice of America TV. It's a platform actually. I invite uh, ordinary people, not even you know, just totally ordinary people, to be their own media. I I uh, teach them how to um, film themselves, how to you know. I I make a instructional video to. Um, take them step by step to be their own storytellers and film themselves. Actually, to be their own documentary maker. And every week I make mini documentary about, you know, uh, people inside Iran by using their own materials, which is amazing. You know, some of them went viral and, they ch- I mean, changed their life. I read about that in your book. I, I, I just finished oh, yes. it. So, okay. so okay. <laughs> you know, it's a wonderful book, by the way. But we're going to talk about that. So I want to introduce you uh, first and give like a little short summary sure. of who you are. So I'm speaking with Masi Alinajad. And Masi has worked as a journalist in Iran, covering stories about the parliament. She currently works as a presenter at Voice of America, the Persian service, and is a contributing editor for Iran Wire. In 2015, she was awarded the Women's Rights Award by the UN Watch. And on social media, she has a very popular campaign under the hashtag MyStealthyFreedom and White Wednesdays. And most recently, she published a book called The Wind in My Hair, My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran. And I got the book. I just finished reading the book, and I very much wanted to speak with Masi. And I have to tell you, I was kind of shocked when I read the book because I thought the book was going to be kind of about your background in Iran. And then quickly, we'll get into just the campaign on Facebook about 
my stealthy freedom but there's a lot before that you you were you you had a lot of history before that so i i can't recommend the book enough like you're you have a lot Mm -hmm. of um experience you the just the story which is the big chunk of the middle of the book is your work as a journalist working um yeah covering uh parliamentary i mean i i i really should present you as iran's biggest troublemaker (laughs) yeah that's actually um uh, true. I uh, I had I have a long long journey. I had a I mean a long journey from my small village, my tiny village, to you know Brooklyn. And um, some people might think my main focus is just about a compulsory hijab, and that's all. But that's not true. You know, this is just for me. It's just the first step towards full equality. Uh, compulsory hijab is just um. The most visible symbol of oppression against women. Before we get into the, all that, could you give like a, a short summary yourself uh, for the people who don't know you? Sure. Yeah, my name is Masih Ali Nejad. I'm an Iranian journalist, a campaigner for women's rights, and an author. Um, I published actually um, uh, four books in Iran, and this is my first book, "The Wind in My Hair," being published in English by Little Brown, and. Um, um, mostly, uh, uh, my main focus right now is about women's rights. But as you said, the government of Iran called me a troublemaker. They called me the agent of MI6, the agent of CIA. Um, actually, the agent of Donald Trump right now, they call me. They don't even know that I'm stuck here in America because of travel ban. <laughs> <laughs> so, and um, um, yeah, that's all. That's all. Yeah, I mean, all this is explained in much more depth and I can't recommend it enough in your in your book. It's a lengthy book, but I, I really feel like the structure of it leads to understanding your, your human rights campaign today. All those little interactions you, you had. But before going into that, I want to also get um, a little bit of history ab- about Iran, because I, I think this is fairly obvious for me and you that w- we know a lot of, about uh, I- Iran in recent history. But uh, for people who don't know, could you explain how the the radical change after the revolution in Iran uh, changed Islam to be more conservative, more religious? Let me tell you that this uh, book, The Wind is my, in My Hair, actually give you a picture uh, of the four decades in Iran, which my gram, you know, my grandmother, uh, my mother and me. And uh, the new generation, my son, and the, these women of my campaign. So for you know, um, generation actually giving you a picture of what uh, is what, 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 how Iran was before the revolution, and how people had the hope that after the revolution they're going to achieve, and what happened to us, the the generation of the ch- the children of the revolution. And what uh, the new um, the new generation is doing right now to get rid of the Islamic Republic of Iran. <laughs> so um, I have to say that um, when I ask my my grandmother, my my mother, my father, who supported the revolution, that what was the reason that actually they got involved in that revolution? They were having the hope to, you know, gain better opportunity for their life. They were, uh, I grew up in a really poor family. So they were looking for a better life, job, food, money. And um, my father, my father, 
was, uh, I mean, still is a street peddler and um, a farmer and, and uh, working in a farm. So my mom, the same, growing vegetable and selling them in the city. And my um, grandfather was just, you know, going and, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy for me to say that, but begging for, for food in the street and going to every individual's um, house and, you know, asking for food. And uh, so that was their reason to get involved in the revolution, food, you know, better life. And um, nothing happened to them when I see right now. They're still, you know, uh, suffering from, you know, poverty. And when I became a journalist, then I asked uh, those reformists that I was, I was, you know, I've been working with them very close in, in uh, new reformist newspaper inside Iran. So I, I, I interviewed the former uh, reformist president of Iran, uh, Mohammad Khatami. Um, I was a parliamentary journalist and, you know, working for so many different reformist newspapers. And they were actually saying, one of the well-known reformists, Mustafa Ortiz, that was um, saying that we had, uh, you know, we had this revolution, we overthrew the regime just because we were looking for greater political freedom. And he himself actually admitted that we didn't, uh, we had already all the social freedom um, women had the right to choose what they wanted to wear before the revolution. Women were allowed to enter stadiums. Women were allowed to participate in, uh, you know, any kind of sports. And we had so many female singers in Iran. And as Mustafa Taizadeh, one of the well-known reformists, said that um, they got involved in the revolution because they were looking for f political freedom, for freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And... Um, so they didn't gain any political, better political freedom, but instead uh, we lost all the social freedom that we already had. And my generation, we didn't have any, you know, we didn't, we didn't take part in the revolution. Actually, we all the one, uh, as I said in my book, uh, experiencing and, 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 you know, um, being witness that how this revolution became a revolution against women. Uh, this is, you know, uh, uh, how, this is the way that I can explain it to you. None of the promises has been delivered so far. And you, if even you go to those politicians who were involved in the revolution, they will admit that. What promises are you referring to there? Yeah, like, you know, uh, political freedom and uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Let's just start. Let's just focus about the women that I said this, uh, you know, revolution became a revolution against uh, women. Let's start from that. You know, after before the revolution, the promise, the main promise from Ayatollah and all those politicians who were involved in the revolution was just, you know, um, uh, Karamat and Sani. So yeah, they were saying like um, women be women are, women are going to be mo more respected after in, in Islamic you know uh, society and after the Islamic uh, the revolution. And they were actually the the headline of the newspaper was like uh, we are not going to force women to be uh, to to wear hijab. Hijab is not to be compulsory. And they were actually, you know, quoting Ayatollah Khomeini and, and, their, and all their, uh, his allies were actually promising that, you know, uh, women are going to be free to choose what they want to wear. So that was one of the promise, which, you know, after the revolution, only um, a few months ago, women just experienced that, no, there's, there's something is going to 
is going to to be to to change and and uh, there was a there was a actually massive revolution women's revolution after, uh, sorry demonstration after the revolution it was women the first group who took to the street to protest against the revolution was women and they were actually asking you know that uh, why we are forced to wear hijab because of the fatwa from Ayatollah Khomeini. So, and it, it happened actually two years after the revolution, and they oppressed that demonstration. And after that, we never had the chance to take to the streets again and asking for our rights back. And, you know, as I told you, all of the, the, the female singers, they just left Iran. And um, this is 21st century. And now we're still fighting for, for, for our basic rights. Just um, uh, yesterday, that was the first time after the revolution, women got the chance to enter a stadium. And this is 21st century. We're still talking about it. You first know? time in 37 years, I read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So women were just, uh, you know, um, and actually from the beginning, um, they were not allowed to. But because of their resistance, the government didn't have you know any um they had to accept that because because of the resistance because of the civil disobedience because women were like sitting on the floor and saying that we are not going to you know leave the street so you see this that uh, i have to say that after the revolution when women took to the street if all those people who were involved in the revolution support uh, you, you know um would support them then we shouldn't fight. We shouldn't have uh, right now uh, for, uh, fight against uh, the our for, fight for our basic rights for a small piece of cloth. So that is why I, I always say that this revolution became a revolution against women. Some people might say that, no, look, after the revolution, women get the chance to, to go to school, to go to university. And look, now more than 60 percentage of university being occupied by women. That is true. We achieved all of these victories by our own efforts. The Islamic Republic of Iran didn't give us anything. Instead, for 40 um, years, the Islamic Republic actually took our body hostage and they wrote their own ideology in our own bodies, in our bodies. And we were the one actually had to carry the most visible symbol of Islamic Republic on our bodies. So that is why when I always talk about compulsory job, I have to mention that we're not talking about, you know, a small piece of cloth. We're actually talking about the most visible symbol of oppression against women. I, I have to ask you, when every time the conversation comes up about the hijab, whether it's me, you yeah. or anyone else, it always comes back to the to the concept of choice and in the West, they will always throw, well, isn't it just a woman's choice to do so? Now, I, I feel that there's there's two aspects that can be divided into more places, but basically two things. One is a, that there is a legal choice, and a second that there's a social choice. And I, I know that mostly you focus on the legal choice in Iran, but it really gave me the impression that even if you were to obtain the choice, the freedom to to wear the hijab, to get rid of compulsory hijab. It seems that a lot of other aspects to hijab that go beyond the law even. That's, that's true. Actually, actually, I started my campaign by uh, just publishing uh, a picture of myself, you know, and, and, and uh, talking about my personal story. Uh, 
So you see, there are so many stories behind this small piece of cloth. My story actually, um, you know, show shows you that me growing up in a in a traditional family and being forced to wear hijab even inside the house, I started my own revolution from my family's kitchen. And um, so through my experience, I learned that this is not just the government. Social pressure, emotional pressure. And, and when I say emotional pressure, maybe you don't have any clue about that, you know. Um, I didn't want to break my, my father's heart. I didn't want to break my mother's heart. I didn't want to lose my community. When you're forced to wear hijab from the age of seven, you think this is this just a small piece of cloth. It's like part of your body. It's like your identity. So for me, it was not easy to take it off overnight and leave all those, you know, emotional band behind me and forget about my mother, forget about my father. It was not easy because when, when, um, when you wear it every day, then you, you think that, you know, this, this, is, this is something really strong link between you and your community and if you take it off then you're going to lose your own community which I did you know my father stopped talking to me but the most I mean important part of taking um, taking my hijab off was uh, actually um, you know the the, per the personal story as I said but uh, the 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 uh, I, can I cannot say that this is all coming from uh, uh, from the law compulsory hijab laws because this is the way, actually, my father being educated by the government. So he, he's, a, he's a simple farmer, you know, working in the farm. He's, he's an amazing, you know, father for me, but he loves me. But I cannot say that he was brainwashed to take me to, to uh, heaven by force by, by the government of Iran. He was watching the TV every day uh, and, and learning that how, you know, to punish me, how, to, how humiliate me, how... Um, you know, putting pressure on me. And I remember from the beginning when I was just a teenager, so I used to create my own stealthy moment of freedom, taking off my chador, my black long chador. Um, and, and, you know, I was, I was totally covered, covered up by, you know, headscarf and long mantu, but I didn't, I didn't want to wear hijab. So I was just walking back from, high, from, from uh, secondary school to my house. And I saw my father by accident in the street. And, uh, oh, my God, I still cannot talk about that day. So he, um, he spat on me. And he was, like, saying, you brought shame in our family. So, you, so, so you, you don't understand that how difficult it is for a woman to um, lose the, the family and community. And when I left Iran and I was living outside Iran, it took me, it took me two years to replace my, uh, you know, black hat, which was my, you know, my version of hijab. So it, it, it was not easy because, because I didn't want to lose my family again. I didn't want to lose my community. So, and, and uh, I was everywhere unveiled, except my media appearance were with my black hat. So you see, there was a long process for even me, which I call myself a brave woman. I, I call myself that, you know, I started my own revolution from my own kitchen, but it's still I, I wanted to have my father. So my father found out, okay, so she's out of control. She's unveiled everywhere. She, he just wanted me to not bring shame on, on the family and being unveiled on my media appearance. I said, yeah, I'm going to do that. 
so this is not not this is not a big deal for me. I, I'm I'm uh, fighting against you know so many um, different things, and there are so many bigger problems. So and I found that even me being brainwashed, and I think fighting for political freedom is important than fighting for my own rights. Then when I publish a picture of myself being unveiled in London with this caption, anytime when I run in a free country and I feel the wind in my hair, it just reminds me of the time when my hair was like a hostage in the hands of Iranian government. And I wrote this caption. That's it. I, I, start, I received a lot of comments from women envying at my freedom from compulsory hijab. So soon after, I published another picture of myself which was taken inside Iran, driving unveiled. And I wrote another caption that, you know, I'm a woman and I know how to bypass the authority. In Iran, I used to take off my headscarf when police was not around, when my father was not around, when the teacher, you know, when I was on my own. And I am sure that there are a huge number of you having the same, uh, you know, picture. Uh, and I asked them whether they want to share their um, selfie freedom with me or not. Because, you know, freedom is freedom. Freedom cannot come with any adjective. But the government of Iran made our freedom to uh, be stealthy, to happen in secret. So, but when you talk about it, then it's not a secret. So that time when I asked women that whether they want to share their moment of stealthy freedom, I got bombarded by photos and videos from women inside Iran. So because they had the same, you know, pressure, social pressure, family pressure and the pressure from the, uh, the law and society. So they started to share their, their moment of freedom. And I found, okay, now this is the time that I have to learn from this ordinary woman. I am a journalist and I always saying that, no, I'm one, I want to fight for uh, bigger problems and I want to fight against the corruption. I can even wear my hijab and go to media and talk about the corruption in the politics. No. If I don't have the control of my head, then I won't be able to get the control of what's going on inside my head. If I cannot solve a small problem about my own body, then I won't be able to fight for, you know, bigger um, achievement. Then I started to launch a campaign and I thought this is the time that we women have to take our own bodies back from the government. I've been following the, the this um, protest now, and it's been going on for quite a few years. And uh, as you say, I, I'm 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 very surprised how long it has endured, and it speaks a lot to how much this matters to women. A few years ago, there there was crackdowns by by the law. Then there was uh, social attacks where men on motorbikes would throw acid in the faces of some of these women, and and then it even exploded again. In the last few months, uh, as the revolution on uh, uh, the women of Revolution Street, where this one street called Revolution Street, but in Persian, where women were holding up hijabs on on a stick, and yeah. many have been ar arrested. So there is there are many real life consequences to this protest, and it's st they still go on for years, and they still do it. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. When I started my selfie freedom, it was like uh, it was just an online movement. Women were sharing. Actually, the real act was happening in the street, but it was just, you know, picture and video of individual women walking unveiled. But then when I launched White Wednesday's campaign, honestly, I didn't expect that women going to do, you know, such a brave act uh, of it's, it's just a revolutionary act and sending me videos. It was women walking in a crowd in busy streets in Tehran. 
taking off her white headscarf and inviting actually other uh, people to join her. These were the videos that I have been receiving for one year, uh, you know, through White Wednesday's hashtag. And then one Wednesday, I, I received another video from Vidamo Vahed, which I didn't actually know her name. I didn't know who she is. She didn't send me the video. I just received it from a man and I published that on my social media. It went viral and she became actually the hero of all women who are fighting against compulsory job. Just one week, uh, I mean, one day after Vidamo Vahed, when she put her headscarf on a stick, that we had Iran protest huge protest against the you know the the government people started uh, to first um first it was about the corruption the economic and you know uh, the workers haven't been paid their salary for six uh, or eight months so they took to the street to protest for economic situation for a better uh, opportunity for food for water but then it became the, the Iran protest became, you know, um, just against the government. People were chanting death dictator. People were chanting death to Ayatollah Khamenei. They were actually chanting, we want all the clerics to be gone. And so I thought this time now people are going to forget Vidam of Ahed. So I just created a hashtag called um, in English means um, you know, where is she? The girl of Revolutionary Street. So, and then one of the women from White Wednesday called Shaparak Shajarizadeh, she actually put the headscarf on a stick, she filmed herself, and she invited other women uh, to do exactly what the first girl of Revolutionary Street did. Because we, this, this, that was the way that we could find who she is and support her. You won't believe me. I was like shocked that how men joining us in second week and third week, we were like, I was just receiving video from men and women putting headscarf on a stick. And in third week, there was the second woman went uh, on the same platform as Vidam of headset, went and, you know, protested against compulsory job. This is how women, you know, how, how women started their own revolution inside Iran. The government arrested 29 hijab protesters. But guess what happened? They became more you know, stronger, and they became, uh, like, uh, more determined to fight against compulsory job. I'm going to just give you one example and then leave it to you if you have any question. There was uh, the woman who got arrested, Shaparak Shajarizadeh, actually. Um, she was interrogated for hours and hours. She got arrested twice, one for putting headscarf on a stick and then arrested for just, you know, um, putting the headscarf around her neck. So she was the main, uh, you know, activist of White Wednesday. And she was interrogated. She was bitten up in, in, inside the detention center. I felt guilty that I'm here. I published her video. And now she's in prison. As soon as she got freed on bail, she sent a picture. And she said that I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of you. And I'm proud of all women in Iran. Just published my picture with white headscarf again around my neck. So you see, this is. Fearless. And I, I, I want to say another woman, I, I still get goosebumps, Shima Babai, another woman who, who joined White Wednesday's campaign, when she got arrested because she was only 23-year-old, uh, I was crying. I felt guilty that she sent her video to me, and now I'm safe here. So she got arrested. She got bitten up in front of, you know, the detention center. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do now? And um, the whole night I was crying. <laughs> but the... The day after, I received the video from, from her husband. 
And the video was actually, uh, it was Shima in front of the court taking off her white headscarf and saying that they arrested me for joining White Wednesday's campaign. But here I am saying that by arresting me, by threatening me, you cannot keep me silent. And I say no to compulsory job louder. So these are the Rosa Parks of Iran, you know? These are the women actually uh, showing the rest of the world how it means to resist. They're putting themselves in danger. They're putting their lives, actually they're risking their lives, but they're still fighting and they never give up. Quite a few times in your book towards the end, you talked about the feeling of wanting to give up. Um, from various reasons, <laughs> one 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 reason is is the the danger these women are putting themselves in. Another yeah. is a feeling of guilt of of being in the West. But I I have spoken with a lot of activists, and a, I think a lot of them, at some point, to run a campaign as you're doing, have to be in the West, and be an outlet for these other women. And I, I think mm-hmm. I, I think they they know that to 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 a to a degree. Yeah, but for me for me because all my life I've been fighting for small. Thing, you know, like for a lot of things that maybe some people take it for granted, but I had to fight. And when I sit in the West, I feel guilty a lot that I had to be there, right there on the main battleground when people are fighting for their rights. Why I have to be here in the West? But the thing is, you know, um, again, I want to, I want to, because I'm in touch with women inside Iran every day. I publish the, their videos and, and I, I'm giving them a platform. Um, but, but the thing is still, when you're a fighter, you want to be in, in the, in the main, you know, battleground. You don't want to be kicked out from your own country. Uh, I had, when I was 19 year old, I got into prison just because of, you know, getting involved in student activities and spreading pamphlets against the government. But I remember that time I was nobody. I was nobody. I was just a student from a small town and I had no voice. None of the media inside Iran wrote about us. It was my father, my mother, my, uh, who, who were like say, thinking that I brought shame in the family. So they didn't want to support me, except my mom did the little thing. So just coming to the court. But we didn't have anyone to support us because we were unknown fighters. So from that time, my dream became like one day I want to be a journalist and give voice to those people who are like me. Coming from, you know, uh, from a small town, a small village, they are unknown, you know, fighters, unknown activists, and they don't have any chance to be hurt. That actually, you know, uh, helped me to just keep going. And another thing was when uh, Shima Baba, one of the, the women of White Wednesdays, when she got freed, she actually wrote on her Instagram that um, uh, she said she wrote that. I was interrogated for hours and hours. My interrogator told me that you have to confess that you're working for Masih Ali Nijad and this is your crime. So you know what she said? She wrote on her Instagram that I replied to my interrogator that I am not working for Masih. This is Masih is working for me because I don't have any voice inside Iran. So you see, these are the women actually giving me the hope. Just not, you know, just I, I, I look at them and I keep going. <laughs> So I, I'm I'm constantly told when I bring up the issue of hijab as a non-Muslim, a person outside uh, a Muslim country, 
uh, or even just as a man, a lot of people just, well, this is a woman's issue. You should just stay out of it. I find that a bit odd since the hijab was created by men and enforced by men on women. So it's kind of odd to be told that men, therefore, should have no uh, opinion on it. But uh, you've also put a lot of focus on the West and yes. and how yeah. the, and, and that's more towards the end of your book where you start uh, pressuring a lot of visiting government officials that they need to talk about it with the with the Iranian government. Now, that's counterintuitive to a lot of people in the in um, in the West in general who think that there should be a certain isolation I- ideology towards not getting involved at all. But you're working very hard. To get, to get actually, them involved. Yeah. So, so do you, I mean, how should people respond in my case or a Westerner talking about this? Uh, how can we get involved as men, as Westerners? What's the right way to get involved in that way? First of all, compulsory hijab is not, um, is not an internal matter because I often get this um, argument that so you inviting the Western people to interfere in such internal matter? It's wrong because the Islamic Republic of Iran actually forced all women around the world when they want to visit my beautiful country to wear hijab. So it's about all women. It's about the female athletes, you know, who wants to go to Iran. They are going to be forced to wear hijab. It's about the, the, the female politicians they have to be, you know, uh, fully covered. Otherwise, they, they will, you know, they will be kicked out from the airport. It's about all tourists who want to visit Iran. They have to wear it. Otherwise, again, they will be kicked out from the airport of, you know, my country. So it's about all of us. It's a global issue. As far as the government of Iran forcing all non-Iranians non-Muslim people to wear hijab, we cannot say that this is an internal matter and let's Iranian women deal with it. No, it's about all of us and we have to stick together. And some people say that, you know, this is, this is a country law. So you, you're inviting the female politician to break the country law. But this is, this is wrong. You know, as I always say, and I wrote in my book that when Burkini ban happened in France, we never said that, okay, this is, this is um, you know, this is a law or when, when the executive order about travel ban happened, I myself stood up uh, against travel ban and I took to the street and protest against travel ban because I, I strongly believe, believe that that doesn't affect the politicians, that doesn't affect the oppressors, it only, it only affects the people. And uh, I never said that, okay, this is, you know, um, this is not my issue. This is not the other people's. Uh, this is not even even the people inside Iran. They never said that you know this is an issue in 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 America. And uh, about Burkini ban, the same. But when it comes to to compulsory hijab and Islamic Republic of Iran, I really don't understand why people uh, keep silent in the West and saying that you know let's Iranian people deal with it within the society. And some people in the West they might say that. Uh, we don't want to, we wear, we, when we go to Iran, we wear this hijab out of respect to your culture. Honestly, this is an insult to us because compulsory hijab never, never, has never been part of our culture. Before the revolution, as I said, we had the right to choose what we wanted to wear. And how you can, you can call an oppre- an, um, a discriminatory law a, a, a cultural issue because girls from the age of seven are forced to wear it. And women get bitten up in the street just because of having inappropriate hijab. 
then you call this one like a cultural issue and you say that I wear this just because I want to respect the, the, the culture. This is wrong. So to me, I think some of the people in the West, they don't um, really know what's going on in Iran. And that is why they don't want to get involved. Uh, and that, that's why I always, you know, try to educate them about what's going on in Iran, how people putting themselves in danger. But sometimes I think some people mix the uh, politics with human rights and for their own agenda, they don't want to touch the issue. You know, I tried a lot to get um, the Democrat liberal, liberals outside Iran involved in this issue and um, asking them that when we were all united to condemn the Burkini ban and travel ban, then why you keep silent? This is, this is hypocrisy. You have to join our campaign as well. So they were, they were silent and I didn't understand why. But still, I'm not hopeless and I'm doing my best to, to uh, make the rest of the world understand that when we talk about women's rights, we talk about human rights. And when we talk about compulsory hijab, we're talking about a discriminatory law. You cannot go to my country and legitimize the law which people in Iran putting themselves and, then, and, and, and fighting against the same discriminatory law. So I'm, I'm going to give you another example that uh, when the women of uh, the Girls of Revolution Street, Shaparak Shajarizadeh, actually, the same day when she got arrested in Iran, there were three um, politicians, female politicians from Netherlands. They were in Iran and they obeyed compulsory hijab law. They didn't challenge it. They kept silent. And it, break, it breaks my heart when I see that, you know, you are in, the, you are in power. Nobody can, you know, arrest you. But you totally keep silent. That is the way, actually, you empowering the Islamic Republic of Iran to put more pressure on its women. I interviewed one of the Friday prayer and on the phone, actually, and I asked him about compulsory job. You know what he said? He said that look, even Catherine Ashton, Federico Mogherini, the high representative of European Union, when they come to to Iran, they respect our culture. Who are you? How you you dare to challenge? You know uh, the hijab laws. So you see, they're using actually the female politicians who go to my country and obey compulsory job laws to put pressure on us and keep us silent. That is why I think, um, you know, this is, this is important that you shouldn't ignore those people who are fighting against a discriminatory law inside Iran. You, 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 you tell a very interesting story there. I, I forget which politician you were talking to because you, you've interviewed so many. But at some point you asked them about the burkini ban that was in a small province in France, and they were very against it. And they said, well, we're against what the French are doing because those women should have the the, the choice to wear yes. a hijab if they want. And then you would come back, but wait, we don't have the choice in Iran. And then I was I was very shocked at their re replies. Like, well, Iran is, a, is an Islamic country, but they are a secular country. So a yeah. secular country, sh it should be a choice. But in an Islamic country, it, it is the norm. So yeah, they're, they're holding a double standard there in, in, in their minds. They're, they, they, they want the right. Uh, they think the choice should exist in France, but not in, in, in Iran. I, I hadn't heard that logic before. It was interesting to hear it. 
it, for, it was interesting for you, but for me, it made me really mad. It made me yeah, sure. really angry, you know, because, because um, actually when I was in Iran, um, I uh, was uh, working on a book project. So I had, um, I had to interview um, seven high-profile uh, politicians. So um, um, I interviewed uh, three politicians, high-profile politicians, uh, Shamir Rafsanjani, former president of Iran, Khatami, former president of Iran, and Karubi, the former spokesman. They were all, uh, I asked them the uh, same question, that if you travel to France, and uh, in the airport, they forced your wives to take off their headscarf. What are you going to do? They were all condemning that. No, they shouldn't do that. They have to respect, uh, uh, you know, a Muslim woman. They shouldn't take off their headscarf. And then uh, soon after, I asked my other question. So how about you forcing, you know, the female politician from France and other Western country in the airport to cover themselves? So they were like, you know, um, so this is uh, a Muslim country and they have to respect our law. I said, but when you go to France, you ask them to remove all the alcohol beverages uh, from any official dinner. So you ask them to respect the Islamic values. That is actually why I think that we have to stand up for our own values as well. The Western feminists, when they go to Iran, we, the women who do not believe in hijab, we live in Iran or outside Iran, anywhere, we have to stand up for our own values because the government of Iran forcing and asking all the Western countries to respect Islamic values. So imagine they come, the, the West come up with a law and forcing uh, Iranian female politicians to take off their hijab. You think they're going to do that and they, they're going to say, okay, this is a law in the West, we have to respect it? Not at all. They will protest. So then why shouldn't we protest against, you know, a discriminatory law? And uh, when people say that, you know, um, uh, the, the female politicians, sometimes they say that we go to Iran, we, we're uh, talking about uh, political prisoners, we want to solve bigger problems, and then that is why we don't want to get involved in such a small issue. It makes me really mad because that, that is a big lie as well. Before Iran deal... Uh, the, the 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 high representative of uh, European Union, uh, Catherine Ashton, when she went to Iran, she her first condition was that I want to meet with the human rights activist, and she did. It was before uh, uh, Iran deal, but after the deal, when Federico Mogherini, the other uh, you know representative from European Parliament, when she went to Iran. She totally ignored um, human rights activists. She never met with any of those women who got arrested for uh, their activities for, or for protesting against compulsory hijab or other rights. So for her, after the deal, human rights was just, you know, buried under the deal. And she totally forgot about that. And it was not only her. Most of the female politicians after the deal, when they go to Iran, they never, you know, talk about human rights issue. That actually, you know, that is actually the uh, double standard because before the deal, that was actually one of the condition. So you see, they when when they mixing uh, politics uh, with with human rights, then they cannot say that we we are fighting for for choice or we care about uh, women's rights in the West. But when it comes to Islamic Republic of Iran, we don't really care. I think when you're talking there about um, the politicians and their approach to these countries, I think you have another obstacle and impediment in front of you for your campaign. And that's many Muslims in the West, and they're actually campaigning to normalize hijab. And in your book, you describe how you went 
to the women's march. But even in the women's march, one of the founders uh, of the women's march is Linda Sarsour, a Palestinian American, and she's tweeted such things as the uh, the hijab is a sign of self respect and modesty. And she's also written Sharia law is reasonable. And once you read into the details, it makes a lot of sense. And she has a lot more pro hijab, pro Sharia uh, tweets and many things she says. And and then there's all these other uh, campaigns to normalize the hijab, such as making a, a hijab Barbie, fashion shows featuring the hijab, commercials with, with uh, hijab fashion models. So I, I think you, like the, uh, your campaign is contradictory to what their objective is. And you're kind of fighting against them, and because they're na- and they're nationals, and there's a lot more of them who who speak English and are in the country, you seem to be at odds and in a tug of war for the attention of politicians. How do you deal with this? It's not easy here in the West now. Um, hijab is more trendy, and um, as I said in my book. A Barbie girl wears hijab can make news for CNN, but millions of Iranian young girls, seven-year-old girls who are, uh, you know, being forced to wear hijab cannot make any headline for CNN. I was actually invited by CNN online to be in a debate with Linda Sarsour. And uh, uh, when I said that I'm fighting for freedom of choice. And that is the reason that I stood up for women, uh, Muslim women in France when they were, you know, uh, forced to take off their burkini. And I stood up uh, against travel ban in, in America as well. So um, that shows I am all for freedom of choice. And I support all the, you know, Muslim minority in the West as well, while I'm fighting against compulsory job. So when Linda Sarso was saying that, you know, I'm sister, I support your cause as well. I said, no, you're, you cannot call yourself a sister when you never supported um, Iranian women's fight against compulsory job. She said, yes, I did. And I said, I went to your Twitter. And I checked all your, you know, activities. You never mention about those women who get bitten up in Iran because of compulsory job. You never, never stood up for uh, those women who are fighting against compulsory job. They get lashes. They get into prison. They get fined. And and uh, now you're saying that, you know, I'm for freedom of choice. You can't say th- that in a debate to, uh, you, I mean, use our cause to, um, you know, actually showing that you're you're supporting freedom of choice. When I see that you never said that, actually, you're patronizing our fight as well by saying that uh, those women who are fighting for their right to drive in Saudi Arabia, you were patronizing them. Or when you're supporting Sharia laws, you have to mention that millions of Iranian women are putting themselves in danger to fight against Sharia laws. And I myself, you know, uh, when I when I fight for freedom of choice, I cannot ignore those women who are being forced to take off their burkini in France. But give me one example that you did support um, the women inside Iran who get into prison. I don't see anything on your Twitter. So can I add there? I, I also I checked that myself various times about Linda Sarsour's Twitter account. And very disappointingly, I also checked the official Women's March Twitter account also to see if they have supported uh, women in Saudi Arabia or the uh, these uh, Iranian um, uh, campaigns uh, for against compulsory hijab. They have not at all. No, they, no, that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart because because, you know, 
for me, it doesn't matter. If sometimes people attack me when I condemn Burkini ban, when I took to the street and, uh, you know, uh, and I condemn travel ban, maybe some people hate me. But I think I'm supporting the minority. But when it comes to my cause, I see these people keep silent. It breaks my heart. And I don't understand that how you can do that to, to your fellow women who are fighting in, in Iran, putting themselves in danger, and you totally ignore them. But I have to say that women, women in the World Summit, and um, there are so many actually um, uh, liberals as well, they're supporting us. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, uh, I, I want to appreciate those people who never care about their political agenda or, you know, they... They, they, they care, they really care about uh, supporting women. And some people in the West might say that if, if they talk about the, like white savior complex, if we talk about women in the Middle East, we, uh, we're interfering in their, their, their fights, let's them deal with it. I don't understand them because when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, Islamic Republic of Iran actually doesn't let any chess players to enter Iran if they don't cover themselves. And one of the chess players from America, Nazi Pakidze, actually said that I, I won't go to Iran uh, if you're forcing me to wear hijab. And I remember all these uh, feminists actually inviting her and saying that, no, you have to come and, you know, empower Iranian women. So you see, you're inviting her to come to Iran to empower Iranian women. That doesn't make, that doesn't, you know, um, that doesn't call white savior complex. But when we invite all the Western women, when they come to Iran, they, they have to challenge compulsory hijab, then you call this white savior complex. You see, this is double standard as well. For me, doesn't matter the color, the country, or uh, the gender, nothing matters. When it comes about women's rights, you have to all stick together and, and support each other. But when I see the hypocrisy, sometimes the, uh, the double standards in the West, I don't give uh, hope. I, I don't. I don't give up, and I don't lose hope. But it just, you know, uh, put more pressure on us. How do you feel in those cases where some, the people who are, for example, protesting, going to 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 Iran? And not wanting to put on the hijab there. And then I see all these other people saying, well, it's their culture and it would help you actually to do it because you're almost doing an embargo on, on their society and you should just uh, submit to it. That we were doing worse by isolating them. No, I have to say that we never ask people to isolate Iran. Never. This is the Islamic Republic of Iran actually isolating unveiled women. Let me tell you something. People might think that this is the chess players or the Western athletes boycotting Iran. That is wrong. This is the Islamic Republic of Iran actually boycotting the chess player who, don't, who doesn't want to wear hijab. Why don't you see it that way? Look, if the West come up with a law saying that all the female athletes, they have to uh, take off their hijab and participate in a tournament, what would you say? Those women who wear hijab, they would stand up for their rights and they would resist. So this is exactly what these chess players from, from uh, India and from, from America, they're doing it. They stand up for their own dignity. They resist a discriminatory law, which I am 100% sure if any Western country want to force uh, hijabi athletes to take off the hijab, they would do the same, and I support them. 
So I don't understand why when it comes to Islamic Republic and compulsory hijab, they're just justifying this and saying this is the culture of Iran, which is not. You know, compulsion cannot be part of our culture or you cannot even say that um, this is isolating Iranian women. Not at all. When Iranian women, you know, uh, fighting against a discriminatory law and you legitimizing that law, actually you helping the Islamic Republic of Iran to isolate that, uh, you know, freedom fighters inside Iran. Do you think that this is mo- mostly due to the Western Westerners' ignorance of what the hijab is? Because no one has a very good grasp on what the hijab really is because it's being explained to them as uh, by people, for example, like Linda Sarsour or Dalia Mugakhet or a lot of uh, other Western um, Muslims as simply a religious symbol that improves their connection to God. But I, rarely did I hear in your book that the compulsion, the push for you to fix your hijab, to wear hijab, I very rarely heard religion spoke of. It was very much oriented around shaming you for your sexuality, shaming you for your appearance, your 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 modesty is based on how much you're showing. Um, even foreign uh, um, diplomats who were who were there, she uh, I, I believe it was one of the ones from Sweden was shocked when she wore a kind of loose hijab and kind of tight pants. That they that's the only thing in Iran in Iran they could talk about and not transcend to to other issues. Do you think that it's just the Westerners' ignorance of what this is and it's being explained to them by people who are misleading them? I strongly believe that this is the uh, main propaganda of Islamic Republic of Iran actually working very well outside Iran as well. We shouldn't ignore that because, uh, you know, while I was fighting against compulsory hijab, while there were people inside Iran putting themselves in danger to fight against compulsory hijab, there were some, you know, um, like um, some pro-government and pro um I, uh, some so-called moderate journalists outside Iran, they are Iranian, but claiming that, you know, hijab is not a big matter in Iran. It's part of the culture in Iran. And they, they wrote an article on, uh, you know, um, New York Times and many other, uh, uh, you know, newspapers to actually mislead the Western uh, feminists and telling them that this is a small issue. This is part of the culture of Iran. And so... In my opinion, actually, we have to educate the the, the, the Western feminists about this issue, that um, if they go to Iran and they legitimize the law, the, the discriminatory law, that exactly what the government of Iran wants to do. So they're using this um, compulsory hijab tool to control the society through their own women. And I have to say that and now uh, the the western feminists who go to my country they are they're totally helping the oppressors Can you, i think i i I, yeah. I keep repeating myself now because here it's really hot and we don't have air conditioner here that's and okay. i have to i got stuck in the room that's okay can you talk about any the encounters you've had since living in the united states with either muslims who live there or non-muslims when you talk about this issue what do you what aspects do you find most frustrating that is harder that's the hardest thing for them to understand most difficult part of my campaign is i have to deal with people who are saying that 
you're causing Islamophobia by talking about compulsory job, by talking about, you know, those women who are getting bitten up by morality police inside Iran. That really, that's really, um, you know, frustrating for me because they never understand that. I'm talking about a regime actually who has womenophobia. I, do, I just created that by myself. Like, they care about Islamophobia, but they don't know we, we, we have been living in a, in a country that the government have the phobia of, of their own women. And um, so, because they don't never, they don't have this experience that being patronized, being humiliated, being just, you know, uh, pushed back because of uh, our gender. And then, then they, they, they always want to keep us silent and saying that, don't talk about this now. You know, um, Donald Trump is around Islamophobia. They might take advantage about your cause. That actually, you know, that actually um, is, is the most difficult part of my campaign because I, I always want to make it clear that, you know, these Sharia laws and discriminatory laws causing Islamophobia, not us fighting against restrictions, not us fighting against, you know, those oppressors who are putting pressure on women and beating them up. L let me tell you an example. I was actually um, uh, the one created the hashtag, my camera is my weapon. So I asked women to use their camera and expose the violence. Guess what happened? Women started to stand up for their rights when they see people telling them or beating them in the street and uh, warning them for their hijab. So they started to film that. And one of the video actually got like 7 million views. The, sh uh, the video actually shows the brutality of morality police in the streets. And I got the criticize from some of the, you know, uh, uh, so-called left feminists saying that, you know, you're now uh, uh, showing the dark side of Iran to the rest of the world and you're causing Islamophobia. And I thought, I, I told myself that, so you think that these women who are fighting against um, Sharia laws or against uh, Islamic restrictive laws, they are causing Islamophobia? Or the law itself, compulsory hijab law itself causing Islamophobia? You know, women get bitten up if they, um, uh, they, they uh, you know, dance in public. You get arrested. If you sing solo, then you get yourself into trouble. You're not allowed to um, participate in some kind, some kind of sports just because of your gender. So, and then you think these laws not causing Islamophobia, but we are, we, we the women who are fighting against this backward law. We are causing Islamophobia. That, you know, that is the, the, the most difficult part that I really don't understand. They want us to keep silent, rather, you know, helping us to remove these backward laws. Doesn't it also, I, I imagine it does upset you, but it, it doesn't, don't you find it odd that when these feminists say that and they use the term Islamophobia, when they see that woman in that situation being beaten for not respecting the hijab or, or any kind of uh, moral norm, why aren't they mo more worried about womanophobia or Iranianophobia? Why do they specify Iranian women by their religion? And when they say Islamophobia, what they're saying is, well, we, we don't want to make people fearful of Islam, but there's so much more to Iranians than their religion. But it's when they say that, what they're explicitly telling you, 
what they want to protect in that whole situation of a woman being beaten is the religion. But, you know, I am a woman who grew up in Iran with all those Islamic laws. And I have the right to have the fear of all the Islamic laws. I don't understand why people want to keep me silent when I say that the Islamic laws actually count me a second-class citizen. From the age of seven, I had to carry a fake identity because of Islamic laws. I love, you know, I, I, I love singing, but I cannot sing solo because of the Islamic laws. And I, I, I love to be my true self, but I have to hide my true self just because of the Islamic laws in Iran. So as a, as a, as a woman, I have to get permission from my husband to travel abroad because of the Islamic laws. I am not allowed to get a passport. Doesn't matter who you are. If you are the high profile politician or you're a high profile, um, you know, athlete, you have to get permission from your husband to get a passport to travel abroad just because of the Islamic laws. So I am the one actually have the right um, to, to have the fear of, of Islamic laws. Why you want to keep me silent? I don't understand this. And that really upset me when people never, never, never lived in an in Islamic country and under Islamic laws, they tell, they telling me that, you know, shh, you're causing Islamophobia. I grew up in a poor family. And I remember that anytime when I wanted to talk about my personal rights, I kept hearing, shh, this is, a night, this is not the right time. Because when you're poor, that means you have to think about, you know, bread, money, food. Then I experienced, you know, uh, war. And two of my brothers, they got involved in, in, the, in the war between Iran and Iraq. Both of them got injured. In that time, I was, you know, thinking about having a bicycle and having fun. Again, shh, it was not the right time. You know, so many bigger problems. Your brothers are in war and you're thinking about your personal freedom, you're having joy and being happy. We had revolution, mass executions in Iran. Again, shh, was not the right time to talk about women's rights. We had sanction. People were suffering about, like, suffering from sanction, from isolation. Again, the reforms were, was in power and saying, don't talk about women's rights. You know, the Western government might take advantage. And now I'm in the West. Again, I'm hearing this time, from the Western feminists saying, shh, this is not the right time because Donald Trump is in power. He might get, you know, take advantage of that. I don't care. I think any time when you see that your right has been taken away from you, you have to talk about it. And, and that really upsets me when people never experienced war, never experienced poverty in their life, never experienced revolution, never experienced, never, never experienced sanction, never experienced all the discriminatory laws in their life, they are telling me, shh, this is not the right time. But I think if you really care about women's rights, then you have to come and join us and condemn anything which is happening in the name of Islam in Muslim countries. Otherwise, you really cannot, you know, name yourself a true feminist. Also, reading your book, it's, it's a, there's so many examples where you were shamed for your sexuality or they even made up 
uh, lies about your sex life. So, yeah. so oh, I can see how throughout your story, hijab may not even be in the context of being a woman in Iran, might not even be the main thing, but it's so symbolic of that in general, women just don't, are not owners of their own body. They're not owners of their own sexuality. And, and it, I think if you don't have ownership of your body, you really don't have anything. So I, you keep saying in the book, and, I, and, I, and, and I'm glad you repeat it, and I, and, <laughs> yeah. I, and I really I think it, it helps it sink in that, w uh, you know, you can talk about nuclear weapons, you can talk about international policy, but what, what larger issue is there than a person having ownership of their body? And women above all in these societies do not have ownership of their body. And it is, it's almost, it, it's, it's absurd and it's mind boggling that feminists in the West today, despite how much importance they're giving to their own bodies and their own sexuality with the Me Too movement and all of this, that they just cannot see that. I, I think it's mostly ignorance though. No, I just don't want to lose hope. I still have hope the liberals, um, you know, Democrats, um, the left, they're going to they're gonna join us. They're going to understand that, you know, um, in 21st century, you shouldn't, you shouldn't um, accept the government of Iran telling you what to wear and using the word, this is like um, the respect out of the culture or um, using the term that you have to respect the country laws, um, using so many wrong you know, um, term to force you to, to, to respect a discriminatory law, this is wrong. And you have to stand up for your own dignity. And I'm sure that if they listen to, um, those women who, who actually got into prison for fighting against compulsory job, then they never, they never going to ignore them. They never going to ignore our cause. So Thank you, Masi Alinejad, for being on. She's the campaigner for My Stealthy Freedom, White Wednesdays. I will link her Twitter and Facebook, and everybody should follow her and her campaign. Please um, check out her book, uh, The Wind in My Hair. It is a fantastic book, and it is one of the essential books to understand what is the hijab and why women in Iran are willing to go through so much fight and even through to to the to the point of even being arrested to fight against this issue it's not a small issue and uh masi is there anything you would like to add Any yeah i just want to say that the wind in my hair actually shows uh that if you're a woman from middle east um especially iran um you have to you know, fight for every single right. And instead of victimizing yourself or being a victim, you have to be a victorious. You have to start your own revolution. And uh, I really want um, to encourage other women through this book to understand that your personal freedom ma is, you know, matters, is important. Never listen to the politicians or, um, you know, those people who say that this is not the right time to talk about women's rights. So I just want to encourage other people to understand that person, your personal story matters and important. We are not fighting against a small piece of cloth. We are fighting for our dignity. We are fighting for our identity. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And your book, you mentioned a lot of personal heroes and you're a personal hero of mine. Thank you so much again for being <laughs> Thank on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.